If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. I know uh, already this semester you have looked at this psalm, but as I was praying about what's going on in my life uh, and what might be good for your lives, uh, I kept coming back to this psalm. Uh, and it's a little bit like when uh, you're, you're struggling with something or you're thinking about something, you're meditating about something. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it seems as though people keep mentioning the same thing over and over. Uh, and it sounds like God's talking to you as people are mentioning this over and over and over again. Uh, maybe for you this semester, Psalm 62 is the thing God's trying to get your attention with. So we're going to pay attention to God's word uh, here in Psalm 62. But before we do, let's ask God for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your great kindness that you continue to, to declare your word to us. You speak to us in and through Holy Scripture. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this place in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll never forget it. Sarah and I were at a, a church function on a Saturday night. Uh, that, that previous Friday, Saturday into that weekend, uh, we actually were around her old stomping grounds, Princeton, New Jersey, where she had worked for a number of years. I was at a conference at Princeton Seminary. She was visiting friends and seeing the sights in that wonderful city. Um, and then we were at this church function Sarah, my wife, was 32 weeks pregnant at that point. And, and while she had complained about some back pain, we, we really didn't think much of it. We thought perhaps it was just the walking and fatigue, and, and we didn't really pay much attention. And so we were at this event at someone's house, and a number of us had gathered for a picture of the group, and, and then she was gone. And then I realized she hadn't been there for a while. And then someone told me that I needed to take her to the hospital. Her her water had broken. And and honestly, I didn't really know what that meant because we hadn't even begun our labor and delivery classes yet. 
but we got to the hospital by 9 p.m. or so. And the big concern that the doctors had was to keep the baby in the womb because we weren't confident that his lungs had developed yet. They gave Sarah a steroid shot and they, they talked about keeping her on bed rest to give the baby some time. Sarah was still complaining about back pain. So I was giving her back massages by 2 a.m. Or, or was it 3 a.m.? Because it was the night of the time change. Uh, Sarah's body was ramping up to deliver the child. And at 3.07 in the morning on October the 26th, 1997, our oldest son Samuel was born. They rushed him immediately to the NICU where he stayed for 15 days and quite honestly probably should have stayed for much longer. Throughout those days, I realized that, that Sam was in trouble. I, I was a bit naive at the time how much trouble he was actually in. And when they sent us home 15 days later, he was barely five pounds. They sent us home with an apnea monitor and they told us to stay away from people until spring. I, I should have known then how serious it was. But in the midst of the shock and confusion and even the out of bodiedness of the entire time, God brought me to this psalm, especially verse 11. And for the past almost 25 years, every time we've encountered a major crisis in our family, this psalm has served as our rock, our reorientation point, and in some ways our rescue. And, because, and that's because this psalm directs me and, and directs us and directs each of you to the only place we can go in times of crisis and trouble. It, it directs us to trust in God at all times, to, to rest and to wait and to be silent before him. Now, y'all, that's easy to do when things are going well. When, when you're grinding out the weeks and you, you have a relative sense of peace and prosperity, it's easy to say, oh, sure, I'm trusting in God. Oh, yes, I, I'm waiting for him. Of course, I'll not be shaken. But when the crisis hits, when the storm comes, when, when the difficulties mount up, whether with our, our friends, or with our family, with our uh, colleagues in class, or with coworkers, when we don't know what to do and we don't know where to go, what do we do? Where do we go? Whom do we trust? And then after the storm passes and the crisis is at an end, do we stop to reflect and to learn and to ponder? What, what did we learn? How, how will we live in the future in the light of, of what's just happened in this crisis, in this storm? Have we actually learned to trust in God at all times? And especially when the storms of life, when the crises hit us, that, that's what this psalm is about. You can see this movement from before the storm to the midst of the storm to after the storm in what David writes here in Psalm 62. Notice the way David describes his trust in God before the storm comes. You have your Bibles or your phones, right? Look at verse one again. Uh, David says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I, I, I say this is happening before the storm because what David has here is actually descriptive, not prescriptive. He, he's describing what his life is like right now. He's reflecting on his life, on his present situation, and he's saying, right now, my soul waits for God. 
Right now, I see my God as the one who I alone wait for. From him comes my salvation. When the storms of life come, I shall not be greatly shaken. That phrase in your ESV Bibles, if you have an ESV, in verse 1, waits in silence. It, it has the idea of, of remaining still, of being motionless, of, of not beginning activity. Rather than being caught up in frantic activity, this, the psalmist here, David, he's, he says, right now, I feel pretty peaceful. I'm not rushing about. I, I don't feel scattered. Because for, for me, God alone is this refuge, rock salvation. Some of you in this room this morning, undoubtedly, this is where you're at. You feel good with God and that's beautiful and wonderful. And we ought to celebrate that and praise the Lord. But, but it's likely for others of you, you've, you've been in that place, you recognize it, but, but, but right now you're in the midst of crisis. And when we're in crises, when we feel as though we're in the midst of the storm, it's as though we're confronted by enemies all around us. For, for David, the enemies that, that, that are surrounding him are those who are attacking him, slandering him, lying about him. You see what he says in verse 3? How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Some of you know what it's like to have people lie about you, slander you. Perhaps it's a group of friends that you were part of, and, but for whatever reason you've had a falling out. Not your fault necessarily, but the stories they tell about you, are they're lying about you. They're slandering you. Or perhaps, perhaps there was a, a hard breakup and, and now the boyfriend is, is talking to his friends and, and he, they're lying about you, slandering you. Perhaps you've at work, a, a colleague, a coworker, and, and they just don't like you. And so they're going to the supervisor and they're telling all sorts of stories about you that are just not true. For some of us like me in my position as a pastor right now, the past two years have been filled with slander and lies. And what, what makes it so hard when people attack, when they come with slanders and lies, it's, it's this dynamic that David talks about. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They come up and act like they're your friend, right? Meanwhile, as they're giving you a hug, they got the knife to stick you in the back. That's how it feels. And when that happens... When, when, when you feel surrounded by enemies, it feels as though your world's out of control. As though everything's crashing down upon you. Like, like the wild winds are blowing everything down. You, you feel as though you're, you're a fence that's not quite plumb anymore. You're tottering, you're leaning over. And it's not going to take much to cause you just to crash on down. Or you feel as though you're on a pedestal. And the pedestal isn't very broad. You, don't have a really good firm foothold and it's not going to take a whole lot for the blow to come to knock you over. It may not be these kinds of enemies, but that sense of overwhelmingness of being knocked down, of walls crashing down, it can come from a variety of circumstances, can't it? Whether financial distress or physical debility, relational difficulties. What do we do when the storm comes? 
Where do we go when the crisis comes? Well, notice the psalmist's exhortation. As he's in the midst of the storm, what does he say in verse 5? He says, for God alone of my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory and my mighty rock. My refuge is God. See, he goes right back to where he was in verses 1 and 2. But now, what was descriptive before, describing what his state was, now it's become prescriptive. He begins to talk to his soul. And he says to his soul, hey, soul, For God alone wait in silence. Because you are my rock and refuge, oh God, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to rest my heart in you. And so soul, don't don't run around. Wait in silence. Be passive before him. Whereas before he he was confident, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now he says is almost a, a shout of defiance against these enemies. I shall not be shaken. When we can exhort our souls this way, when we can somehow in the midst of the storm to be able to preach to our own hearts this way, it, it, it serves as a testimony to ourselves and to those around us concerning who our God is, that our God is salvation and glory. Our God is mighty rock and refuge. He is a proven trust. Is that who God is to you? Is God your proven trust, your rock, your refuge? Is it your instinct in the midst of the storm when when crises comes to to just pray? Doesn't even have to be a long prayer. Is your instinct, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or even just, oh, Lord, have mercy. Or is your instinct to to act, to maneuver, to network, to collect information, to solve? Now, not that there's anything wrong with necessarily collecting information or trying to network. But what's your first instinct? Where do you first go? To whom do you first run? To your friends? Or to your God who is a rock and a refuge and a strong tower Listen, y'all, it's hard in the midst of the storm. It's hard in the midst of the crisis to, to, oh, I need to run to God. Oh, I need to trust in him. Oh, I need to wait for him. It's hard, which means that, that it may be after the storm, as you're coming out of the crisis, where you can do your best work. That's what happens with David. The first two verses, I think, descriptive before the storm. Verses 3 to 7, he's in the midst of the storm. He's exhorting his own soul as the enemies are around him. But, but in verse 8, he shifts. And he moves from I, me language to you language. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. For God is a refuge for us. You see, he, out of his own experience, begins to call to others to, to learn, to reflect upon what's happened to him. And what he's discovered in the midst of the storm is the only place we can go and the only sure rock we have is to trust in the Lord at all times. To trust in him at all times. What does that look like? 
What does it look like to trust in the Lord at all times? Well, David says, it looks like pouring out your heart before him. Imagine a huge pitcher full of water that you're pouring the whole contents out upon the ground. That's what it looks like to trust the Lord, to pour out your heart to him, to tell him, Lord, this sucks. I hate this. This is hard. I don't like this. Please intervene. I don't know where to go. I feel like I'm crashing in upon myself. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Please rescue me. God can handle that kind of honesty, you know. That's why by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has David tell you and me that his great reflection at the end of the storm is to trust in him at all times and to pour out our hearts to him. To pour them out because God is a refuge for you and he's a refuge for me. That's part of the the call that God gives to us as we reflect on what's happened in the midst of the crisis and we're reflecting back. Oh, this is what I learned, that God is worthy of my trust and I can trust in him. But then after the storm, as, as we trust in him and we reflect upon, yes, this is, this is what God's calling me to do. He's also calling us to consider, to consider two things we've learned, things about people and things about God. What do we learn about people? Well, verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. You, you see, when we trust in God alone, we discover that those humans who act to harm us, they can hurt us. They can hurt us. But they can't destroy us because they themselves are but a puff of wind. They are a wisp of the cloud. They are a short breath. They have no real weight compared to the weighty glory of God. But we also learn something about God when we trust in him. And it's verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast law. You see, verse Steadfast love. You see, verse 11 represents twin poles that we must cling to the next time difficulty comes. We trust in God alone because we know that God is strong. That's one pole. That God is is the most powerful being in the universe. And we confess it in the first lines of the creed. I believe in God, the, the God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Father Almighty, he is strong, so strong as to speak worlds into existence and to fling stars in the sky and to carve out Grand Canyons with his pinky. He is strong. But the other pole we cling to is is that God is a God of steadfast love, a God whose love will not let us go. If we only have the pole that God is strong and powerful but not loving, He could certainly do whatever we ask him to do, but he may do it to harm us. We could never be certain that that he loves us, that he may in fact be a malevolent being. And if God was only loving but not strong, we know that he would want our best, but we wouldn't be ever sure that he could actually accomplish what we ask him to do. But the psalmist tells us, no, God's both strong, powerful, and loving. And when we cling to those two poles, we can trust this God whom we've come to know. 
Where do you see that? Where, where do you see God's power and his steadfast love most clearly displayed in all of scripture, of course, at the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, the power of God, the cross of Christ, the love of God there as Jesus' hands were stretched and clinging to two poles, two stakes on that cross. There you see the strength of God manifested in Jesus' weakness to rescue us. There you see the steadfast love of God. There you see that God would willingly judge evil and so render to men according to their work. But there you see too God's mercy to us that as we trust in the finished work of Jesus over and again, that God forgives and God rescues and God in Jesus Christ proves to be a steadfast refuge. Over and again, this psalm has journeyed along our way as we come back again and again to trust in this steadfast God. Over 25 years now, as the various crises have come, this psalm has proven to be the place to which we've gone. The most recent time was August 30th of last year. Uh, There was no sign, no symptoms, no family history from my wife, Sarah, when she was diagnosed with metastatic colorectal cancer stage four. Two weeks later, she had surgery. A few weeks after that, she began chemotherapy. On the night that she was diagnosed, our kids now largely grown and out of the house, flung across the southeastern states, we, we texted them and said, we needed to have family worship, which had been our pattern all along the way in raising our kids. And as we had Zoom family worship that night, August 30th, we wanted to make sure our kids knew two things. One, now's the time to believe what we say we believe. We're in the midst of the storm. But the other thing we wanted them to hear is this psalm. And as we read this psalm, we came back to verse 11 and we wanted to be reminded together, we're clinging to those twin poles, knowing that the Jesus who clung to the cross for us was clinging us too. That's true not just for us. Friends, that's, that's true for you too. Jesus is clinging to you. His hands pierced for you, strong, loving. And so trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts before him. For God is a refuge for us. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, I do pray for my, my friends here in this room this morning. And I pray that, that whether they're before the storm, in the midst of the storm, or after the storm, that your word, spoken once again from Psalm 62 in this chapel semester, might ring in their ears. And that you might prove to be a trust well-known, but that they would, that my friends would come to you once again, that they would pour out their hearts before you, and that they would be able to say with the psalmist, I shall not be greatly shaken because you are a God who's both strong and loving for me in Jesus Christ. Grant this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.